Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, listeners. I want to thank the Ravinia Festival in Highland Park, Illinois, for helping to make this interview possible. Gabriela Montero kicks off the Breaking Barriers Festival celebrating women composers at Ravinia on July 21st. The festival is led by chief conductor and previous Speaking Soundly guest Marin Alsop. If you haven't already listened to my conversation with her, you gotta check it out. It's a great episode. And if you're in the Chicago area, you will not want to miss hearing Gabriela Montero perform live. Tickets are available at ravinia.org. Venezuelan-born, Grammy-nominated pianist and composer Gabriela Montero is in a class of her own. Her unique skill for improvising complex, spontaneous compositions stuns audiences worldwide and remains a mystery even to Gabriela herself. When I sit down and I improvise, I get out of the way, and it happens by itself. And I could do it for hours and hours, and it would never be the same. It's kind of a mystery, and it's a really beautiful thing. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. The first thing I ever heard you play was on the radio. I was in the car and I was already parked, but I stayed in the car until the announcer said who was playing because I was completely blown away. You were playing these Argentinian dances, Mm -hmm. and there was this third movement that was so jagged and chromatic. It was so cool that I scoured every recording I could find of that piece, but none of them sounded like yours. It just sounded like you were having so much fun that it, it sounded like you were composing it on the spot. Wow. Well, that's interesting that you're talking about that dance because I've just started playing it again after so many years. I... I played it. It's it's one of those short pieces that comes in very handy when you're asked, you know, for TV or radio to play something that's under four minutes. There's not a lot of, there are not a lot of pieces in the repertoire that are under four minutes. 
And it's, su it's such a evocative um, sound world of, of where I come from, of South America. So you're right, it, it's not about performing it, it's, it's about really being in it and really living it and, and the rhythms and kind of the brutality of hearing the, the horse's hoofs on the floor and the dance of, of the kind of South American vitality that you hear in the music is so present in that piece. So I guess I just connect to, to where I'm from. It worked <laughs> because I went straight to Tower Records to look for the recording. It must have been, well, it's before they closed, probably around 2005, 2006. Yeah. 2005, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I found the CD and the album covers a picture of you with all the names of the composers that you're performing underneath. And then in kind of a different font, it says that there's a bonus improvised <laughs> CD. Kind of felt like the sneaky way your record label was trying to introduce us to both sides of your talent. Were you difficult to market at first since there was no other classical piano recital CD also with improvisations on it? That's a really good question. Um, well, you just took me back to that time in New York and I remember going to that Tower Records uh, next to Lincoln Center and seeing this massive poster of the cover of my CD, of that CD. And that was one of those moments when I just felt, oh, well, it's pretty nice, you know? So I was really surprised and, and pleasantly kind of, I don't know, I got a kick out of it. Um, and back to your question, yes, it continues to be difficult to market who I am because we live in a world which it seems needs to put everyone in boxes. And it's been difficult to get the message across that I might be seen as someone who is very novel and revolutionary in what I do today with improvisation in classical style and other styles. But in reality, I'm just kind of old fashioned. I'm very much, you know, the 18th century kind of artist model. It's just a language. It's music is a language that manifests in many different ways and forms. And in my case, it just keeps kind of flowing. And I like that. Maybe it's being Venezuelan, which has something to do with that. What part of your Venezuelan-ness coincides with an 18th century sensibility? Well, again, great question. I think it's about just being who you are in that moment, in that phase of your life. I've just never been preoccupied with how I'm defined. It, other people worry about that. I'm just really trying to be myself, and that's mm. it, you know? Well, the second recording that I fell in love with of yours, this won't be a catalog of every one of your recordings, <laughs> I promise, because that, that'll get boring to you very quickly. But while I'm at it, your recording called Bach and Beyond is amazing because the Beyond part is you improvising on Bach's themes and you make it sound like Johann Sebastian Bach grew up in South America in the 20th century <laughs> instead of Germany in the 18th. Uh -huh. Since his music is considered to be so sacred, in particular among pianists, did you have any hesitation at all using his themes as the basis of these wild and amazing improvisations? Maybe for a second, because I, I understand what an enormous reference he is you know, to all of us. But at the same time, many different artists have done takes on, on his music. And I just, 
I just think it's valid to to take somebody's language and uh, bring it to a different world. Why not? I don't think you should define music in such square terms. I don't think music should be limited. What does it feel like to be inhabiting and manipulating the music of a composer that lived 300 years before you did? Well, you know, that recording and like every other recording I've ever done was absolutely 1000% spontaneous. There's nothing written, there's nothing planned. It was just me in the recording studio with my producer, David Groves at Abbey Road. We had a long list of favorite Bach themes to use. And that was, that was it. Then I would sit down at the piano and I would play the theme and off I'd go into totally unknown territory. And that's, that's improvisation. Um, and sometimes I guess I, I would play the theme just to establish you know, what, what room I was in, let's say, or what, what sound world, and then it would transform into something else. It's just incredibly logical. It just, it just happens quite comfortably. I didn't know that that was recorded in Abbey Road. Was no, that was... cool? Did you realize the importance and historical significance of that recording oh, studio? Oh, absolutely. It was, and it was in that studio where, I, you know, where everybody from the Beatles to, I mean, every, every major, you know, artist has recorded. It was in that studio. And I remember that they set it up in a very kind of interesting way because they put candles in the studio, dimmed the lights and just made it very, very kind of salon-like. So it became like a living room, and it was absolutely wonderful. It was magical, actually. Well, now i got to listen to it again, just with this knowledge of what it was like for you when you recorded it. (laughs) It's interesting. You just gave this disclaimer, which I've heard you repeat to audiences before in your live performances, assuring them that what they're about to witness is completely spontaneous. There's no smoke and mirrors. Nothing was preconceived. Do you find yourself having to assure people that there are no tricks up your sleeves and what they're hearing is completely improvised? All the time, even after 20 years of doing thousands of improvisations. And people have even gone so far as to sometimes accuse me of planting people in the audience so that when I ask for a theme, they'll say, oh, you know, you planned that beforehand. I said, what are you talking about? So it, it's amazing how the human mind sometimes has difficulty accepting that, that something can be born out of nothing. There are no templates. There's no formulas. It's just a process that is as much magical as it is neurological. And There was a big study done on my brain at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. They wanted to see the difference in how my brain behaves when I improvise versus when I play a memorized piece. So we chose um, a Bach Minuet to be the memorized piece. And I went into the fMRI machine. Initially, it was for 30 minutes. It ended up being for almost two hours. And it turns out that when I play uh, the memorized piece, I pretty much use the normal, you know, parts of the brains that, that every musician uses. And when I improvise, basically that, that part of my brain kind of goes to sleep. So my, my motor uh, skills, my, even my ear, it sort of goes a little bit dormant. And then they found that I improvise through my visual cortex with my eyes. But I don't see anything. I don't, I'm not kinesthetic. I don't see anything different. 
And he said to me, Gabby, this part of the brain we've never seen, you know, used for this task, for music. Uh, can't explain it, but somehow your brain creates a little neural pathway, a little bridge that connects one part of the brain to the other. And then when you improvise, the visual cortex, which is much more powerful, just mm. goes crazy and is, is like fireworks. And that explains why when I sit down and I improvise, I get out of the way. That's exactly what I'm doing. And it happens by itself. And it's the most beautiful thing. And I could do it for hours and hours and it would never be the same. It's, it's kind of a mystery and it's, really, it's a really beautiful, beautiful thing that happens. You're a superhero in this respect. <laughs> you are describing Superman's origin story where <laughs> all of humanity has a difficult time accepting his exceptional powers. I mean, I did when I first heard you, I thought there was no way that someone can just sit down and this can flow out of them. I thought for sure you had taken your time and written them out because no one can do this unless they were born with these superpowers. And sure enough, there's pictures of you in the crib playing the piano. How old were you when you started to play anyway? I started to play when I was eight months old. I was playing by the time I was a year and a half. So in that period of eight months to a year and a half, I started to figure out by ear, you know, the national anthem and all of these different lullabies that my mom would sing to me to put me to sleep. And I, I don't come from a musical family. In fact, my family had no idea of classical music until I came along. So it's not that it's been passed on or anything like that. It's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's like a brain glitch, which uh, I guess defines me. As non-musical parents, did they have a hard time embracing this talent that you had the same way that Clark Kent's parents had a hard time <laughs> dealing with the fact that he could fly? <laughs> um, and that's so funny. I've never heard it quite like that. <laughs> um, I think it was, a, it was a bit daunting for my parents. What do you do when a child uh, manifests such an early inclination, you know, an early talent that is undeniable, and, but you don't have the means to help her develop that. You don't have the knowledge. I mean, it's, it's a big responsibility. I suppose that my relationship with the piano has become so, so personal because it's been a very jagged road and it's made me communicate through music perhaps in a very, very intimate way. So it's not a profession, it's not what I do, it's really who I am. So I sometimes feel sorry for my parents. Um, I think they did the best they could. Uh, we are who we are because of our experiences and, and our, our, what we've had and what we haven't had. Well, when your parents did realize this affinity you had toward the instrument, how long was it until you started formal piano lessons? What was that process like? Well, when we lived in Caracas and I was about two, actually the, the most well-known piano teacher, pedagogue in Venezuela at the time was Lil Tiempo, an Argentinian um, pedagogue. And she actually lived uh, in the apartment above us. So I could hear her, you know, teaching. I could hear the music when I was- At what age little. were you? I was, I would have been two years old, more or less, two, three years old. So my mom 
went upstairs and my mom said, my little girl is very, very talented. I would like little tiempo to please see her, listen to her. Oh, she has a waiting list of two or three years. Come back when she's old enough, you know. Anyhow, my mom insisted and uh, I ended up auditioning for Lille when I was, I think about three and a half, four, but I was so shy. <laughs> I was so, so shy that I didn't play. I was pathologically shy. Eventually they kind of coaxed me into playing because I was, I was put in a group of other little kids who were playing. And I guess when I saw them playing, I said, okay, now it's my turn. And then I started to improvise. And that's when Lille realized that I had this, this, like you say, superpower. Um, so I started lessons at four, but this was, you know, 15 minutes a week, just Gabrielita, tell me stories with the piano. And then I would improvise. That's what I wanted to do. I then made my, my concerto debut when I was eight playing Haydn the major concerto in Caracas. And I didn't know how to read music by that time. So it wasn't until I was about nine when we left. Whoa, to whoa, whoa. Come. did you just say you're nine years old? performing a Haydn piano concerto and you couldn't read music yet? Yeah. <laughs> How did you learn it? Well, just by ear, because for me, everything is ear. I mean, I, I like to shock people, especially when I give master classes, <laughs> because I, I tell them, and, it's, and this also explains a little bit my improvisation, that I never studied harmony and I never studied theory and I never studied solfege. You know, my mind doesn't work like that. And from the very beginning, my nature took over and it was always by ear. So I learned to Haydn by ear, I played it. And there's a recording, there's a video on YouTube of a Haydn performance I gave the year afterwards when I was nine. You can watch that. I've seen and it. And then, oh, you have? It's amazing. <laughs> it's really funny. It's really funny how I bow. <laughs> I'm so uh, awkward, you know, this little girl. And then I sit down at the piano and it's business. You know, I get so serious and I, and I, I'm really giving my best. And then I stand up and I'm this awkward little lanky kid. And then I do an improvisation, which lasted, I don't know how long. And I had people waving me down backstage saying, okay, stop. Because <laughs> so long, you know. So basically you're different than every other musician because we all start by practicing and, and you work on that technique and develop your artistry, but you didn't have to do that. You just played. Yeah, it has to do with my nature. And I'm fascinated by the idea of talent, of natural talent. And when you're bestowed with something that is, you know, part of who you are, as is the color of your eyes, I'm fascinated with, with how you live with talent, how you develop talent, and what priorities really matter, and how do you honor that talent, and, and how do you construct a life around the talent because I didn't want to construct my life around my talent for many, many years. I stopped playing many times and I, I didn't really want to give myself into my nature. I wanted to be something else. Well, what did you want to be? I wanted to help people. I wanted to work with people. At some point I, I thought of maybe studying psychology. At some point I, I thought of maybe being a social worker. I love helping people. I love doing things for people, making people happy. I love fighting for people, as you, as you will know through all my Venezuelan activism. Um, I wanted to do something that was not so um, 
self-centered, let's say, as, as it is to be an artist, and you're alone in a room, and then you're alone on the stage. I wanted to contribute. And um, I felt that my natural talent, which means being at one with the piano, and then sharing that, I thought that was a very lonely exercise. So for many years, I didn't want to do this, and I did everything I could to not be a concert pianist. And then I, I, I found myself a single mom with two little girls at the age of 32 and $1,000 in the bank, and that was it. And I went back to Venezuela for three years until 2006. And the realization that I either had to soar or I could sink, just that, that, made, me, um, that made me actually jump on that train that was already taking off you know, with my career, and I had to go for it, and I had to make enormous sacrifices to, to be able to survive those years. Um, and the other thing is making peace with the incredible gratitude and blessing that I feel to be able to communicate human stories and to be able to communicate with other people and you do that so well. There was a concert I saw you perform in Germany mm -hmm. where after your recital, you ask the yeah. audience to suggest uh, a theme on which you would improvise. And you're asking in English, they're answering in German, and there's this communication that happens with the audience despite the language barrier. It's really amazing to watch. That must be so much fun for you to do. Oh, it's, it's absolutely wonderful, and it, it democratizes everything because you know it's not just me talking to the public it's them talking to me and showing their humor and singing to me sometimes 3000 people and and people who don't know each other coming together to sing one theme that maybe means so much to them because it's from where they're from yet it it doesn't mean anything to me it only becomes something through their collective action so there's something in music dna that that is, is intuitive, and it just kind of shows itself in, in the ways that you least expect it. And it's not only fun and wonderful to give people that sense of them having a voice, but it's also, it has become an incredibly powerful tool for me to speak about difficult subjects, you know, about what's happened to my country, to Venezuela, and to really create empathy and to create a sense of wanting to know, you know, what happened to this part of the world. So it's a way to galvanize the audience into, into caring and into wanting to know. How do you see the intersection between music and activism? How has it influenced your role, not only as a musician, but as a human being? I, I think that music is a very powerful language. We as human beings have a, a voice, we have a duty when we see tyranny and when we are aware of injustice. And um, it, my life changed when I decided in 2010 to speak against the Venezuelan regime. It completely changed. I decided to take on this role that came with a very, very high price tag because when you, when you speak out, you not only have an enormous amount of people supporting you, but then you're under attack. And the side that I am against is 
very, very ugly. So I became a target of so many different attacks from so many different sides, um, even in our industry. And it's been the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. There's been no benefits to it whatsoever. I've paid at a very high price for it. But at the end of the day, before I die, we all ask ourselves, did I do everything I could do? And in this situation, I did everything I could do. I just threw myself into it because I was surrounded by so much pain and tragedy. And I had thousands of messages of Venezuelans telling me what they had lived through. And I remember saying to Sam, to my husband, this might end my career, but I have to do something. I have to, I have to do what I think is right. And in 2004, I got a call. Chavez wanted me to become an emblem of the revolution. He wanted me to be um, the star soloist in a concert. And I had nothing, basically, at that point. And when I was told that if I accepted, I would never have to worry about money again, I immediately said no. I didn't even think about it. It was the easiest decision of my life. I haven't been able to return to Venezuela since 2010 because of my very vocal activism. I haven't seen my father in almost 10 years. And I know that I never will again. So this is just one of the ways that a situation like the Venezuelan situation changes your life. And like my story, there are millions of stories, far worse. So in the end, you decide, you know, who am I and what am I going to stand for? And what is my role in all of this? We all have a voice. We can all do something. It's just amazing that you were dealing with all of this. And then just a few years later, you'd find yourself in the middle of the largest celebration of democracy and freedom when you performed alongside Yo-Yo Ma, Itzhak Perlman, and Anthony McGill at Barack Obama's inauguration. That must have been mind-blowing. What was that like for you? Oh, it was incredible. It was incredible to be in Washington a couple of days before the inauguration and to feel a city and a people that seem to be going through this incredible transformation of hope and healing and, and just expectation and excitement. Um, it, was, it, was a really, it was a really beautiful moment, not just because of what it meant historically and such an honor to be there as well, but I just, it just felt like for an instant, uh, everyone became one. And there were no differences. There was no struggle to understand each other or see each other. It was just a communion of people of all different races and religions and nationalities that came together. So it was a really, really beautiful moment. And a little personal victory for me was that I was there and Chavez was not invited. So that was a, that was a major <laughs> coup. That's awesome. You see, that's, that's one of the things Venezuelans remember. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. 
Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at SpeakingSNDLY and visit our website, ArtfulNarrativesMedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly.